Lucia, when will your book be available on audiobook? I get asked this every day. It's coming. In the meantime, I thought I could drip it to you here, narrated by me, one chapter at a time, starting with the preface. So, here it is. Praised by Robert Cialdini, featured on NPR, and shot to number one new release status on Amazon within three days of release. Oh, and fun fact, I'm one of a very small handful of women authors on the topic. I hope you enjoy my narration of my splashy, sexy, smart, and stylish book, For the Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation. Chapter 2. Play Nice, Rapport and Haggling. How do you feel about negotiating for a car purchase or a salary increase at work? Do you relish the experience? Do you put it off as long as possible, citing all sorts of excuses? The timing isn't right. Everything is fine how it is. Why rock the boat? And alphabetize your spices instead? We live in a culture, at least in the United States, where many people still consider a negotiation cringy. When no haggle car purchasing policies were introduced some years ago, they were warmly received by consumers who dreaded negotiating. Naturally, these policies benefit the car dealerships over consumers, but they package it as a benefit to you to make you feel more comfortable about the car purchasing experience. For many, negotiation is awkward and even synonymous with conflict. Some even consider it tacky. Although I wasn't particularly afflicted with this shyness, I understand it. I savored a good haggle at the car dealership just as much as the thrill of the Scripps National Spelling Bee. In fact, if I learned that a friend or family member was in the market for a car, I'd giddily ask if I could tag along. Was that because I thought I would strike awe in a salesperson? Hilarious. I am hardly a remarkable presence. When I amble into a car dealership, heart rates don't quicken as salespeople mentally fortify their A-game to go toe-to-toe with the 5'2", 110-pound, plain brown-haired and brown-eyed small-town Midwesterner. Indeed, when starting out as an attorney, I was routinely underestimated. This worked out splendidly for me. Everyday negotiation is a superpower, sure, but invisibility is also a pretty nifty superpower. I would accompany, say, a senior partner to a meeting with the Longshore Union, and there I was at the bargaining table with my naive face and unimpressive physical stature. Other than an occasion on which one of them wondered aloud to the group in reference to me, who invited the secretary of the Lollipop Guild, and was rewarded with chuckling all around, They dismissed me out of hand, while those guys, all men, just saying, forgot I was even in the room. I was there. As the comically large conference room chair swallowed me, I was listening. Stick around for more juicy gossip on this point in Chapter 5. To everything, 
not just what was being said, but what was not being said, and the spaces in between, the nonverbal glances and other cues, not to mention I had done my homework and was exceedingly well prepared. Over time, I became less invisible, and I admit I sort of missed it. By the way, Bob Bourdon, a senior fellow at Harvard Law School and celebrated negotiation and mediation expert, offers specific advice on how to haggle for a car on his YouTube channel. As with most negotiations, it involves a little advanced planning, which we'll turn to in the next chapter, and it's effective. I recommend his channel, aptly called Bob Bourdon, for that and other short, practical, and entertaining videos on negotiating everyday situations, including the all-too-common family Thanksgiving quarrel. Not that that's ever happened to you. Perhaps some of the vexation we have with negotiation stems from an us-versus-them, win-lose, zero-sum paradigm. This is a game theory scenario in which one person's gain is equivalent to another's loss. So the net change in the wealth or benefit at stake is zero. A fundamental fear of rejection also tends to be a pervasive thought. What if they say no? Well, for one thing, most likely you are in no worse a position than before you asked. And here's an aha tip reinforced by not just me, but Alexandra Carter in her book, Ask for More. Don't give up just yet. No isn't necessarily the end of the negotiation. Try responding to no with the question, what are your concerns? And you very well may find yourself continuing a new thread of the negotiation. One very effective tool to overcome the us-versus-them apprehension in negotiation is to build rapport with the other party. How do you do this, and why is it important? Here's the how. Establish rapport with the other people engaged in the negotiation. This requires adopting a genuine attitude of curiosity about other people and slowing down. If possible, take some time in advance to learn what you can about that person's background. Even if you know nothing about them, a simple, how did you get involved in landscape architecture? Or what brought you to this part of the country? Were you raised here? Or even the origin of their last name will do. The key here is that your focus is on them and letting them know, without overtly saying it, I see you as a human being. Then pay attention to how they respond. Smile. Show an interest. Demonstrate that you heard them with a recap. Wow, coming to California from the Midwest seems like it was quite a culture shock and sounds like you don't miss the weather. And then notice if they reciprocate. Do they show an interest in you? It's okay if they don't. And the lack of reciprocation is also information to keep in mind. Some quick do's and don'ts on rapport building. Do. Pay attention and listen. This is very different from waiting quietly for your turn to talk. Don't bombard them with questions and cause them to feel they're being interrogated. This has the opposite effect of creating trust. Do. Have a sense of humor. Don't. Monopolize the conversation. 
do. Look for shared experiences to build upon, no matter how small or seemingly mundane. Don't talk only about yourself. Do make small talk. Although many people dread small talk or view it as superficial, it still creates connection. Make small talk more meaningful by avoiding the same old, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. With a tiny dose of preparation. How are you? Good. I just started this new podcast, book, series about French cooking, hummingbirds, dog training, etc. And I'm really enjoying it. Have you heard of it? Don't focus on the next question you want to ask. Now for the why of establishing rapport. Genuinely connecting with another person satisfies a basic need for people to feel that they belong. In fact, people have a stronger need to belong than they do to be right factually. More on this point in chapter 11. When you demonstrate curiosity about someone else's life, attitudes, and interests, it is a validating and satisfying moment for them, not to mention it causes the brain to secrete dopamine because someone is paying attention to them. This is much better than the superficial dopamine hit through the like analytics supplied by social media. Building rapport serves a couple of purposes. One, it humanizes a negotiation and alleviates some of the defensive posturing. And two, it provides a baseline of behavior for that person. That is, in a more or less relaxed state of mind while talking about a topic that is comfortable and easy for them, what is their tone of voice, volume, and vocal pacing? Do they tend to gesture a lot with their hands and body? Do they stop to pause and think? Do they smile? Baseline behaviors when an individual's defenses aren't triggered provide a basis for comparison later in the negotiation when their words and actions deviate from the baseline. You may not know the meaning of the deviation, but it's very important you don't make assumptions and commit the Othello error. This term was coined by renowned University of California, San Francisco psychologist Paul Ekman for his research in lie detection and emotional micro-expression. In the Shakespeare play Othello, Iago convinces Othello that Othello's wife, Desdemona, has been unfaithful to him with Cassio, a handsome soldier in Othello's army. Iago uses Desdemona's handkerchief, which she lost and he got his hands on, to help in his plan. He finds a way to slip it into Cassio's quarters. When Othello confronts his wife with the false accusation and evidence of the handkerchief, she becomes, understandably, fearful and behaves very nervously. Othello interprets her behavior as confirmation of her adultery and ultimately, he kills her. Only later does he discover that Iago planted the handkerchief and has been lying to him all along. The knowledge tragically undoes him. The lesson? Simply noticing a change from baseline may be enough to inform you it's time to pause and regroup, but not enough to take your preliminary assumptions as fact. You may even key into the correct emotions on display, but not know what it means. 
As humans, we have a basic need to connect. We think we get that through screens, algorithms, and social media experiences. Although those moments and tools certainly offer some value and efficiency, they tend to be illusory. Minimal effort, knowledge, or preparation are required to advance that extra step to establish more genuine rapport, and you concede nothing by doing so. Here's a homework exercise to get you practicing your everyday superpower, but don't worry, unlike my law students, I'm not grading you. It's a simple haggle you can do on Craigslist with a next door item for sale or at the farmer's market. As a first step, take a minute to build some basic rapport with the merchant or seller, even if just to make eye contact, flash a genuine smile, and ask how their day is going. If making an inquiry via email or text, you can accomplish this with some brief and friendly small talk, and emoticons are allowed. Show interest in the item with specific comments like, I appreciate the craftsmanship of the wood inlay on this dining table. My grandfather used to work with wood. You could ask an open-ended question, but strategically loaded question, such as, how flexible are you on price? And then observe closely how they answer. At that point, you are well on your way. Everyday Super Tip If the haggle exercise seems too daunting, try this and then graduate to the haggle. The next time you're checking out at a store or by using the live chat or contact us feature for an internet purchase, ask, do any other discounts or promotions apply to my purchase today? The follow-up to a no response is, are there any coming up soon? Rinse, repeat, track your results. There's really no downside, and you may be surprised by how often the answer is yes. Building rapport can be a daily practice without coupling it with negotiating. Once it's a habit and you combine it with a simple haggle exercise or more complex negotiation, it won't seem like an effort. Both rapport and the haggle exercise are also consistent with Robert Axelrod's evolution of cooperation. He explains basic behavioral economics and game theory that have been tested in iterated trials. You may have interpreted the words in this chapter title, play nice, as synonymous with be nice. Certainly, you should be as nice as possible when negotiating. But the title is not meant to echo the Wendy Ward Charm School Guide to Be Nice, complete with a lilting voice, warm, gentle, and animated, and instructions on how to sit in a chair such that the body formed an S-shape. Play nice refers to a specific game theory model of behavioral economics and leverages smarts, sophistication, and strategy. Accomplished from an S-position, an Amy Cuddy power pose, or crisscross applesauce in yoga pants from the sofa while on a video conference. Axelrod taught four lessons to optimize cooperation and outcomes. One, be cooperative. Start off with a cooperative attitude and expect your counterpart to do the same. Two, be provocable. Be capable of retaliating if the other party stops cooperating. Three, 
be retaliatory. If and when the other party stops cooperating, retaliate immediately and in kind. 4. Be forgiving. When the originally defecting party resumes cooperative behavior, so do you. Do not hold grudges. This is how groups realize more overall gains through cooperation. John Forbes Nash Jr., the Nobel laureate in economics, referred to it casually as the most beautiful woman theory, and it is featured in the bar scene of the film A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe. Everyday super tip. Remember how you felt with your first real crush? Sure you do. Remember specific conversations with them? Probably not. People will remember how you made them feel more than your specific words and actions. See chapter four. How does rapport fit with negotiations using technology? Even before the dramatic shift to remote asynchronous communications and interactions due to the COVID pandemic, everyday negotiations by email and online were the norm. Although negotiation through technology produces some unique issues, advantages, and disadvantages, the dynamics discussed throughout this book still apply, including establishing rapport. Human-to-machine negotiation. The first factor to determine in any online negotiation is, are you negotiating with a living human being or with software or artificial intelligence, AI? If you're involved in a consumer complaint or return with Amazon, eBay, or a similar online customer service representative, the live chat agent, at least to start off, is almost certainly AI. While the traditional rapport building step may not seem to apply in that situation, one, give it a chance because the algorithm may resolve your issue quickly. And two, it may not matter because the negotiation is purely transactional in nature, so relationship isn't even a factor. More on this in the next chapter. But don't be too quick to dismiss the idea of taking a cooperative, rapport-oriented approach with AI. You may be fascinated to learn that Axelrod's rules for cooperation among humans were gleaned through computer trials. In the 1980s, Axelrod conducted iterated trials of the basic game theory problem called Prisoner's Dilemma, in which the two players participated in a multi-round version of the game, neither player knowing when the game would end. The classic Prisoner's Dilemma is set up as follows. Two suspects, who we'll call Annie and Benny, are arrested by the police. The police have insufficient evidence for a conviction and, having separated both prisoners, visit each of them and offer the same deal. If one testifies for the prosecution against the other and the other remains silent, the silent accomplice receives the full six-year sentence and the betrayer goes free. If both stay silent, the police can only give both prisoners six months for a minor charge. If both betray each other, they receive a two-year sentence each. Each prisoner must make a choice to betray the other or to remain silent. However, neither Annie nor Benny knows for sure which choice the other will make. What will happen? 
If reasoned from the perspective of the optimal outcome for the group, in this case, the two prisoners, the correct choice would be for both prisoners to cooperate with each other, as this would reduce the total jail time served by the group to one year total. Any other decision would be worse for the two prisoners considered together. When the prisoners betray each other, each prisoner achieves a worse outcome than if they had cooperated. Axelrod hosted a tournament where participants submitted strategies to be used against all other competitors and a default competitor called Random, who would choose to defect or cooperate on a random level. Many well-known economists, game theorists, and computer scientists submitted strategies ranging from quite simple to extremely complex. In the end, a basic program called Tit for Tat prevailed. The program simply began by cooperating and then proceeded by copying its competitor's last action, whether defection or cooperation. Here's the kicker. Axelrod then published the results and analysis of the tournament, allowed time for people to adjust their strategies to outthink tit-for-tat, and then hosted a second tournament where tit-for-tat prevailed again. I often ask a prefatory question if routed to a live chat system. After the agent on the chat has introduced themselves with a chirpy greeting and a human-looking name, I type in the chat something to the effect of, are you a living human being or are you AI? I still may not know for sure. An AI system such as GPT-3, for example, is extremely sophisticated and can compose poetry, generate tweets, summarize emails, and answer trivia questions. But just because you are automatically led to AI for your negotiation doesn't mean one, you are stuck there, or two, it won't be effective and even swift. AI might even negotiate better. It has crowdsourced millions of previous cases and aggregated data to learn behavioral pattern recognition and possible solutions that may not have occurred to you. While there are important ethical considerations to letting AI make our decisions for us, one thing we can give it credit for is helping to enable e-commerce by improving the dispute resolution process. Colin Rule, president and CEO of Mediate.com and Arbitrate.com, is widely recognized as one of the first architects of large-scale online dispute resolution, ODR, as the designer of the original consumer dispute resolution platform for eBay in 2003. At that time, he recalls that eBay was doing more transactions on a daily basis than the NASDAQ electronic stock market. In 99.9% .9 of the transactions, people did what they're supposed to do. The buyer paid, the seller sent an item, and the buyer was satisfied. But that 0.1% of disputed items equated to about 60 million annual disputes, for which Rule designed an automated system with keywords, prompts, and categories of questions to guide the buyer or seller through the process. 90% of the 60 million annual disputes were resolved with technology alone. In all those cases, there was no human neutral, Rule told the Harvard Law publication The Practice. He elaborated, A 
customer service rep wouldn't have to touch those cases. It was just the software that we built working with the parties to find resolutions. After all, we had 60 million disputes with only 25,000 employees worldwide. If all we ever did was work at disputes with our 25,000 people, we wouldn't even get through a third of that in a year. Human-to-human negotiation. Now let's assume someone with a pulse is your negotiation counterpart online or via email. Many people receive and send hundreds of messages each day and at a speed that often compromises thoughtful word choice, skipping the extra sentence or two that could have made the difference in connecting with the recipient. Video conferencing adds the synchronous and visual aspects of communication, but still doesn't capture the nuances of being in the same room with other living and breathing human beings. In a brick-and-mortar setting, we also know for certain who is present and who is absent, whereas video and voice conferencing allow for the possibility of eavesdroppers or others on the other side of the call coaching your counterpart. The protection provided by the screen can also lead to more insensitive language, threats, and bluffs as compared to the in-person experience. Then there's screen fatigue to take into account. Despite these hiccups, if you can negotiate in synchronous time, that is, all together, whether in person, by voice call, or by video call, it is generally more gratifying than asynchronous deal-making or conflict resolution. As advised by Victoria Medvek in her book, Negotiate Without Fear, say it, don't send it. By communicating an issue, question, or offer in synchronous time, you can immediately evaluate the reaction and calculate how you may need to adjust. Recognizing the reality that asynchronous communication will most likely play some part in your negotiation, though, again, try not to rely on it exclusively if you don't have to. Here are a few tips for negotiating asynchronously while availing yourself of the tried-and-true lessons in this book. Just because the form is electronic, don't brush aside the rapport-building step. Not only does it serve as an icebreaker, but it also nurtures human relationships. Relationships are how deals are made, and relationships require attention. Have an agenda for that particular call or message. A technology-based negotiation will likely need to be broken down into several sessions. As for email, no matter how eloquently written, a lengthy email that outlines all of your requests and justifications in a single communication is A, not strategic, showing all your cards at once, and B, unlikely to be appreciated or even read in its entirety. As with setting an agenda, emails should be tailored to just one or two points and kept brief, but not too brief. An email that says, as discussed, see attached, and attaching six documents for the reader to review and figure out how it all connects is not very helpful. I often include a mini table of contents in an email of even just two brief paragraphs. In fact, This is one of the tools that led to the publication of this book.
As a debut author, I researched agents that fit the genre and reviewed their submission guidelines. Most required a simple email query with a brief summary of the project before deciding to invite any content. They also warned of a four to six week lag time for an expected response. I decided to query four agents while the manuscript was undergoing review by a trusted editor, not expecting a reply for some time. After my salutation and initial introduction, my brief two-paragraph email was prefaced with, in this email, one, what is my book about? Two, why should it be published and become a bestseller? Three, why am I the best person to have written it? Three of the four agents replied within 24 hours, requesting a formal submission. Everyday Super Tip Make it easy for them. The easier you make the job of digesting your message for your audience, the more likely you are to garner agreement. On a video call, be aware of your background. Everything around you communicates something about you. Try to establish eye contact. This is better accomplished by turning off the feature that allows you to view yourself and looking into your computer's camera rather than the other person's face on the screen. Prepare for an online email or video negotiation and treat it just like you would an in-person negotiation. Do not multitask, checking emails or social media alerts while the other person is speaking. Genuinely engage with the other people in the virtual room and give them and the agenda your full attention. Silence any other device that could make a pinging noise you will get more out of it yourself and even feel better about the time. Summarize points in a follow-up email and secure agreement that you have understood correctly. Find ways to be encouraging, make small talk, and keep the rapport going throughout the call or email. This may be the third Zoom call for your counterpart that day or their 90th email exchange. Use the language of empathy in your communications, which we will discuss in a later chapter. Be thoughtful with your word choice, the use of all caps and exclamation points. Your talking head and or written words, unlike the communication of your full body in person, is all someone has to infer your messaging. Recognize that where a negative inference can be made, it will be made. More on this point in chapter 11. So remember, play nice. Thanks for listening. Negotiation isn't just for business. It's everybody's business. Every day. And it can be your everyday superpower. Stick with me here. And you can find my best-selling book on Amazon, For the Forces of Good. The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation.